Hello, and welcome to the newest episode of the Last Week in AI podcast and the newest episode of the Towards Data Science podcast. I am one of your hosts, Andre Karenkov. And I'm another co-host, Dr. Sharon Joe. Uh, we've done one crossover earlier this uh, year and had so much fun that we decided to do it again. So let me welcome the host of the Towards Data Science podcast, Jeremy. I'm, I'm thrilled to, to join this award-winning trio and, uh, and keep the gravy train going. So yeah, <laughs> oh thanks gosh. guys for having me. This is going to be fun. Indeed, indeed. And, and yeah, we are also excited to do this again. Uh, so the plan is pretty straightforward. We're kind of deviating from the usual format for both our podcasts. We're just going to chat about stuff we learned about or, or found interesting about AI this past year in, in 2021. Okay, so uh, who wants to go first? I'm happy to start. Go for it. I've, I've been super excited to see, you know, the rise of uh, multimodal models and seeing how, you know, all of these different modes can now fit into Transformer. And so this is going to be very exciting. I think this is the start of uh, a lot of cool projects in a lot of different spaces. I'm particularly excited about, you know, healthcare, how we have so much image data, but also so much text data um, and so much other different types of modalities as well. Um, so I think um, that's been super exciting. What do you think that says about about sort of knowledge representation and and knowledge more generally? I mean, like I always had the intuition that the optimal learner for vision, for example, like would just turn out to be quite different from the optimal learner for text, something like that, right? Whereas I, I'm not sure if it's right to say that that's not true because there there probably is a more overfit uh, optimizer for vision or, or tasks like that. But like I, I don't know, has this changed the way you think about? integrating learning from different sources about the generality of some of these systems like I actually thought that you know the optimal learner at least the base model or you know what's known as a foundation model would be very similar because I think our brains actually do integrate all that very you know cohesively and so I I do think that the base will be the same um I don't think like the actual you know end state, like we're using this now, um, model will be identical. And we see vision transformers and we see spatial MLPs. We see, we see things that are, you know, different, um, for vision still. Um, but I, yeah, I'm excited to see how this, this grows, um, and, and is able to, to represent many more modalities that I can't even describe, um, like molecules and everything. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm reminded of a tweet that Andre Kapafi had this earlier this week, where he was basically thinking about the consolidation of everything can be done with a transformer now. Uh, you don't have like uh, RNNs, LSTMs, CNNs, everything is just moving towards transformers. And yeah, he pointed out that in some ways you can then be reminded that there's a single learning algorithm in the brain. So in, the, in theory, all the modalities are being processed by the same thing there as well. Um, yeah, so it's it's interesting, I think. And I am of the opinion that it's a good thing in that, you know, all everyone who gains understanding of transformers can to some extent apply that across modalities and, and then combine modalities. Um, some people are thinking that it's actually bad because now you're consolidating and there's less originality. But I guess we'll see if, if this holds true uh, until next year. 
I think more people working on something equals more creativity potentially. And also like to counter the brain thing, which I still, you know, believe is that we also have eyes and a mouth and ears, you know, so like we still have specialized, um, uh, parts of our body parts, I guess, uh, that do, do certain functions, not just the brain. Sorry, Jared. Mm-hmm. No, no, I, I think that's a really good point. And, and actually something that's a bit of a kind of an intuition check where it's like, you know, this, this one model that we've been used to kind of looping back to every time as an intuition guide seems to no longer be as reliable, like, like the, the, um, the parallelization of different tracks, different types of data that our, our brain uses isn't a really good guide anymore through this, this consolidation lens if it ends up persisting. One interesting question, though, is like, does this end up persisting? Like, do we end up just building better and better transformers? And then that's one kind of key component of what gets us to like AGI. Or is this the beginning of an AI winter? I've heard that argument. I'm super skeptical of it. I actually, I really don't think that's the case. But, uh, but I have seen it floated, and it's kind of an interesting thing to, to consider that if we are converging on this architecture, that may imply diminishing returns um, if scaling doesn't work out the way that it's hoped to work out and, and so on. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that aspect, but. Yeah, I, I have some thoughts. Um, just earlier, I think a couple of weeks ago, I released this thing about the inherent limitations of GPT-3. And I do think a lot of people who are excited about these new developments in giant models are maybe forgetting some of the limitations of transformers in general. So obviously, they have a fixed input size. Um, they have no memory. They're generally trained via supervised learning and not reinforcement learning. So there's a lot of limits that really mean that, you know, many, many tasks, like you can do out of completion for code, for instance, but you can only do it for like one function. You can't write a whole file based on some spec because that's like bigger than the output uh, or, or something like that. And like the context window is limited, so you can't, put everything, put all the info into the brain of a transformer. So I think we'll see new things, you know, extensions of a transformer, probably combinations of existing ideas, something like that I'm, I'm certain we will need to really make progress eventually. I think to some extent, you know, it really depends on how hardware and compute uh, grows. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, we're limited by how that grows. On the other, we are building systems that very much track wherever, you know, the um, largest gradient is in, in terms of the growth of these hardware systems. And so we are, we've designed Transformer in a way that works on our GPUs, which has been, you know, the growth of, of our, our chips and, and just what we use for compute. But arguably, if the story could be very different if some something else took off uh, earlier and it could be a different model. And so I, I very much wonder if there's something more and more general. I joke a lot that MLPs will be our next um, thing. And then people's like intro machine learning class will just be like a week. Um, so it's, it, you know, I, I do, I do wonder about um, things getting more and more general and seeing how that that tracks compute. Actually, the, the mm-hmm. tracking compute piece is interesting too, because there's there's this dance between uh, compute getting cheaper, but also at the same time, these algorithms getting more efficient. I mean, Google just came out with, uh, I forget the name that they gave the system, but their language model, you know, 25x more efficient on a, I, th- I think it was a compute basis. Um, and, you know, that, so, so you're sort of seeing these multipliers compounding across the board. It's sort of interesting to, uh, 
to see that dance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's another trend that I found interesting that throughout the year, like every couple of months, we saw another announcement of a giant model like GPT-3 or, or bigger. And now, yeah, like it's it's a national thing where like Korea and Israel and China all are like have one of them or a couple. And and yeah, it's also like an industrial thing where Google is now doing it. Uh, who else? NVIDIA did it. And so, yeah, I think it's it's interesting to see this, maybe not race, but kind of marathon where we'll we'll get bigger and bigger until we hit, you know, the limit. And it's interesting to think of when the limit actually is hit now that everyone is trying to just go as big as possible. Yeah, I guess. And one of the, the things with that, too, is you see the erosion. Uh, there's such an interesting kind of dynamic with business models here, but you see a lot of the erosion uh, of focus on safety and security that comes with that kind of competition. You know, OpenAI, when they first released GPT-3, famously, they were going to review every application. There's a long wait list. You'd be screened. They'd be reviewing even how you use the model after screening and so on. And, you know, Jurassic 1 comes out of, uh, of Israel, I think AI21 Labs, and, uh, and then Eleuther AI comes out with GPTJ, and, and we start to, as these new models have been coming out, we've seen margin essentially eroding from the, the first movers like OpenAI in the space, and that margin would have gone to security and safety, and that's being chipped away. So you now have this like liquid market of different companies all offering their own large language models. And if you, as let's say like a malicious actor, wanted to go in that direction and use it for whatever reason, uh, you'd have a lot more options. And, and that's sort of like, it's an interesting part of this story as things get, you know, the rubber starts to meet the road more and more on applications. Um, and it takes less and less expertise to actually leverage these things too. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. And I think not just for malicious actors, but in general, you know, as, as people race uh, forward, then we'll you know, unintentionally, there might be problems that arise. So obviously, GPT-3 had a lot of encoded biases, and now it's released. Uh, OpenAI did try to gate it and make sure that people are careful. But, you know, when you, when you have a thousand apps being built, it still might lead to issues. So, yeah, another trend I found interesting is I think more research you know, this has been a trend for a while, but I do think it's continued of more research, kind of examining um, how we do research, how we develop models, in particular, looking at what is in our data sets, how do we collect our data sets. You know, in Europe has a whole data sets and benchmarks track uh, that had a lot of research. Um, so, yeah, I found those sorts of uh, research papers really interesting, really looking at data and not algorithms. And there's, yeah, quite a few. Uh, so I was excited to see that becoming more kind of something that is, is even done as research. Yeah, I also think so. OpenAI still has their review process technically uh, for deployed applications, but with um, the rise of some of these models, it's it's going to be harder to to prevent that. I think they're still riding on the, we're technically still better and we're improving it technically <laughs> with more compute. Um, they do have more compute than um, I think uh, some, of, especially the nonprofits or open groups working on it. And so I think there's like still a little bit of that, but I think that we need to start thinking about, um, uh, I think the response responsibility that we have in, in using these models. 
Yeah, and it's like not an it's not an easy proposition too, because like you you don't want to stifle research and development. Like you want people to be able to just mess around. It's just just a it's a tough decision surface. Like I yeah, honestly, it's like so many of these problems. It's like yeah, I see the problem, but the the solution is is much harder to to uh, to pin down. Um, what do you guys think about reinforcement learning? Because we've seen a lot of a lot of cool stuff. Obviously, Mu Zero. That's not in the last six months necessarily, but that sort of branch, the model-based reinforcement learning stuff, that's been really taking off. Is is there stuff there that you guys find particularly uh, exciting? Let's see. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I, I keep up with reinforcement learning a good deal, being in robotics, and it's it's kind of been the case that reinforcement learning is just really hard. <laughs> you know, and we haven't cracked it at all for a long time. I mean, we cracked it for, I don't know, Go and chess to some extent. Um, and this year, actually, there was some research on doing that efficiently. Uh, instead of, you know, playing millions of games, you can now do it something more akin to human uh, amounts of data and, you know, other games like Atari. But when you get to anything beyond a game where the rules are the same and it's a simple world and it's, you know, only blocky pixels like Atari, we still cannot do anything there. And I don't think there was really a breakthrough of any sort. Uh, aside from there's been a lot of excitement about offline reinforcement learning, uh, which allows us to really collect data sets instead of learning online. So people are excited about that. But I think we are far away from it's it's yeah things don't work nearly to the extent that they do in LP or computer vision or or what have you that's for sure. Um, I think it's actually I think we're meeting an interesting inflection point like the beginning of it potentially because I think we're starting to see things that work um, from sim to real. Uh, like a little bit. And I think that's been really exciting to see how people's opinions have been changing a little bit. Um, I don't think this means, you know, it's going to completely work, but I think um, at least uh, from uh, from my purview on the startup side, I've seen some things starting to to take off a little bit more. I think the, um, the start of Wabi um, by Raquel Erdison uh, is kind of an indication that... Um, you know, like something like this could work and we could learn everything through sim. What about you, Jeremy? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, uh, I'm, I'm definitely interested in, in the, the, the sort of dissolving barrier between simulations and reality, not just in terms of um, being able to cross over, but just better and better, richer and richer simulations that look more like the real world. Um, so as well, like the work just on simulated environments, like DeepMind coming out with their, uh, I think it was DeepMind, um, I think generally capable agents emerge from open-ended play, uh, where, mm -hmm. where the focus is more and more on environment, like procedural generation of environments, and starting to see how that is kind of becoming its own. It's hard to draw analogies like this, but it sort of feels like uh, we've realized that there's something like language for RL, and that something is the procedural generation of the environment. So just like language encodes such a rich uh, knowledge base. And there's so much potentially generality to be to be gained from mastering language. Likewise, you can get generality from just a very rich environment that's highly expressive, but but also just like diverse and that throws all kinds of stuff at you. This is an interesting trend. 
and kind of a, a, its own little subfield of basically procedural generation, co-evolution of policies, agents, and their environment. You can go back to something like Poets from a few years ago where they had these little like two-leg walkers. Uh, there's been some work in robotics where basically, yeah, you continually figure out new tasks, solve those new tasks, and then keep varying it. Um, and that, yeah, that is, I think, one direction that a lot of people uh, in this field think is promising. Uh, it's it's also, personally, I think it's, I don't know how uh, powerful it is because at the end of the day, you're limited by, by what you can do procedurally. And so the procedural generation itself, if you ever played a game, you know, at the end of the day, you can only do so much that varies without everything being broken. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's definitely a part of a recipe that is interesting, uh, but uh, we'll see if if it is you know scalable. I suppose. I think it's in the works. We uh, we were just uh, looking at um, how you know these these indie games are doing a lot of procedural generation. Maybe not so much with that much AI, um, but it's it's starting to be more and more popular, and it's more and more interesting when you don't know where you. It's not an anticipated you know type of form or order of events that you get each time you play. Um, and I think on the other side is something like AI Dungeon, where uh, it is very AI powered and it is very open ended. And I guess in both cases. Um, they break at different points. And I think with the indie games, they're really trying to constrain it so it doesn't break. Um, and with AI Dungeon, um, <laughs> it depends on your definition of break, I guess, and expectations going in. But it probably just, I think it breaks pretty quickly um, relative to the indie game. And I think we're going to see them kind of come together um, more and more as we reduce constraints and add in more AI and maybe um, produce that breaking. I don't know. Yeah, I guess I should clarify also that I'm thinking of it especially in the context of sort of real world environments, right? So like, you know, house, like your house, your apartment. And the issue that we have is that, you know, it's you, it's very hard to get a comprehensive scan, you know, collect any sort of data that includes all the small objects and all the little parts. So we have some data sets with like furniture and you can make a generative model of, you know, apartments. And that has been done. There's been some research on like outfitting rooms with couches and, and TVs and so on. But when you look at robotics and you think about, well, where is all the stuff in the kitchen, the plates, the snacks, whatever, what is in the fridge? We don't have that data. And so and it's very hard to get the data. So it's very hard to get a generative model of the real world for agents to learn in. And, and yeah, so our environments are still these very simplified things that we can build by hand. And that definitely will be enough and, and you know, enough to learn a lot of things. Uh, but at some point, we'll have to actually address this generative model of the real world uh, trick. And maybe, you know, maybe we'll have agents collected yet. Uh, I, guess, I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, it, it also makes me think a little bit of, and it is related to open-ended learning, I mean, which, which I don't know. I don't know how this has been um, sort of received by, by you guys with your respective focuses, but um, to me, it seemed like something that came out of nowhere, where just overnight, I was just hearing about open-ended learning all over the place. I think uh, OpenAI now has uh, a focus on open-ended learning, or they've got a team for it. I, I got to chat with him, actually, um, Ken Stanley. It was a really interesting podcast. 
Um, and uh, and yeah, just this whole new lens on on you know learning without objectives, basically, and, and novelty search, that sort of thing. Um, do you do you see that as like, like? Do you agree with that thesis? Do you think that it's something that is going to be necessary, or is it um, is it just kind of an interesting option to have floating around and perhaps redundant with some open ended uh, or procedural generation stuff? Or, or I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it's an interesting direction. I think in particular, Ken Stanley has been you know evangelizing for several years. I remember. There was some event, some like maybe hackathon or something at OpenAI in like 2019, and I saw also that talk there. So there are, I think, some groups pushing in that direction, and I think it's really good in the sense of like you want people that believe in different approaches and directions, and it's hard to know what will actually pan out. So I think there's definitely potential there, but there's also yeah these issues, especially of a procedural generation where you know, at some point you're limited by the rules uh, and the components of your uh, procedural generation. And I'm not sure how to overcome that, but I do think that maybe if people are, are researching and believing in that, maybe, you know, it's possible to crack, track, to crack it. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen this uh, idea, Sharon. Basically, it's just, you know, um, instead of having a single... MVP, reward function, whatever, you know, your agent is kind of learns a lot of things that just vary. And it has this whole like distribution of possible problems. And it kind of sequentially, typically there's sort of, it starts off simple and then there's some sort of curriculum that emerges where, you know, eventually it can solve really weird stuff. You know, so if, if you're doing the walker thing, there's like a, a playing field and then you add bumps and then it needs to jump and, and things like that. Yeah, I, th I think uh, like Ken's archetypal example and, and maybe the most tractable form of this is like novelty search. So he likes to, to frame this in terms of, you know, what is interesting? So, so uh, interestingness seems to be an important property that drives humans to learn. And his thesis is that without some notion of interestingness, uh, we're missing a critical piece of the kind of AGI or general intelligence puzzle. And so the question is like, how do you define interestingness as a metric? Uh, it's, it's difficult because it's this open-ended thing where you know, you're sort of just doing stuff because it's cool. It's, you know, you're, you're, um, you're maybe uh, studying some topic, not because you think there's going to be an immediate payoff, but because it will lead to you know, some second order objective. Um, and so kind of defining, pinning down what it means to be interesting is a big part of his research program. And his first attempt was novelty search. So just basically try not to do stuff that you've already done. And his thesis there is like, if you just apply that constraint, you know, eventually human beings end up wanting to leave planet Earth, right? We've done all the stuff we can do here. So naturally this leads you to want to go to Mars. It leads you to want to go to the moon and so on. Um, anyway, so, so sort of a, a different paradigm. He likes to think of it as sort of objective, objectivelessness. What? What am I even saying? Learning without objectives is what I was trying to say, um, and, and that's or without explicit objectives, I guess. Anyway, that's the that's the general gist. Mm. Well, we all love to see kids and animals just playing around, <laughs> which I think is an archetypical example of how we do that. We just you know meaninglessly play for fun, and then we learn about the world that way. So I'm sure it'll be one one necessary component at the end of the day. Is it like curiosity or how does that differ? Yeah, it's similar to curiosity. I think curiosity is a more limited 
idea where in generally the term refers to in a given problem, in a given environment, you're looking for novel states. So your exploration is uh, improved. And so, you know, you, you can make progress by sort of moving beyond the frontier that you found. And open-ended learning is, you know, an extension of that maybe where you're not just learning to reach new states when solving a given task, you're learning to like do different things without being told to do them. So it's like, you know, monkeys learning to juggle or something, <laughs> you know, just having fun. Uh, yeah. So the, the big difference is not, not having a defined objective and having that objective kind of just made up on the spot uh, by the agent. And the hard part is like, uh, as Jeremy said, you know, how do you figure out what is, you know, you know, there's an infinite amount of things you can learn. So how do you actually learn things that are useful from this uh, lack of objective? It actually kind of ties into, or at least it makes me think of um, one, one paper that I did want to did want to bring up, especially because, again, I'm, I'm, I'm interested and curious about how this has been received beyond my immediate bubble, which is a little bit more AI safety focused. Uh, but it's a, so this paper on power seeking, um, optimal, uh, oh, optimal yeah. policies, yeah, tend to seek power. Okay, Sharon, it looks like you have a, a spotlight. on. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah. What did you think of it? Or do you want to give a quick overview? Oh, podcast. sure. Yeah, yeah. No, good point. Um, yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> so this is um, this is an interesting piece of AI safety work. It was done by Alex Turner, uh, who's a, a PhD student. I forget where exactly, but it, it's an interesting piece of work. Basically, this looks at, um, so you have a, you imagine having an MDP or some kind of, some kind of agent. And the argument here is that Agents will tend to navigate towards areas of state space, essentially with more that have more downstream downstream options. So these are referred to in the paper as like states that are bottlenecks of of like power. So basically, states that have more downstream options are more powerful states. And the idea here is that if you a priori have no idea what the reward landscape looks like you should, for, for your problem, your MDP, you should expect that an agent will navigate towards regions of state space with more power. Um, and this is where you get the idea that you know optimal policies tend to seek power. That caveat's important. It is about optimal policies, and this has been highlighted as like one key piece in the kind of safety-related arguments that come down from this. Because if it is the case that optimal agents tend to seek power, then we can expect the average reward distribution to lead to agents that have these instrumental goals. So they're not just focused on, you know, you ask the agent to do a really good job at, to use a tired example, paperclip generation. Well, maybe on the way to generating as many paperclips as possible, this agent goes, gee, I gotta make sure that I never get turned off. Because if I get turned off, I have no more options after that. Getting turned off is a powerless state. And this puts it in a kind of adversarial uh, relationship with human beings potentially who might be trying to control it. And so that's sort of the overlap with, with the safety piece. Maybe I'll park it there, uh, Sharon, if you have any thoughts about that, I'm really curious. This paper really struck me as uh, the optimal policies sound a lot like Stanford undergrads <laughs> <laughs> who are trying to open doors and trying to be in a state where they have as many doors open as possible. Um, but I think the, the caveat is like, does that mean they will? And I, I think when it is optimal, they will select, you know, certain paths um, eventually, as opposed to, 
you know, selecting no path. Cause I think there's also like, I'm continually opening doors and just like trying to open as many doors as possible, but never actually getting anything done. Um, is like one possible, I think one possible scenario, especially if this, if it, it thinks it won't, um, if it expects to, uh, survive or tries to survive the whole time. Right. Um, so in an infinite timeline kind of thing. Uh, so I, I was just thinking about it from that perspective, um, how it was similar to how some humans that we know operate. It's a good policy, you know, keep your options open. Uh, yeah, I just glanced over the paper and I think it's interesting, but also more in the theoretical realm, uh, which I think honestly of a lot of safety research where... You know, there's a very specific type of environment. They have like the symmetry idea, but for the most part, they can prove this for. If you're looking to do complex things like robotics, you often shape where you word. So you give hints as to what you want to do. Maybe you give demonstrations. And so it's hard to know how future agents will even, even learn. Like, will we do imitation learning primarily or will we do reinforcement learning by itself or will we do some sort of combination will we have curricula it's impossible to know so it's always right now at least for a lot of these kinds of work to think they're super interesting but also i don't know how much they imply about the future personally uh but what what is your take jaron that's that's a really interesting interesting angle on it so my perspective on it was that uh, this helps shape priors, at least, about what we can expect agent behavior to amount to. You know, to Sharon's point about opening doors, which I really like, uh, or, or like t the endless uh, taking more and more degrees cycle that we also see is sort of an, an example of that. Um, you know, just resource aggregation. This is like the ultimate example of, of power seeking, right? Just like more money is more optionality. And so, you know, you can anticipate things like that. Or just uh, from a physical standpoint, to get even more theoretical to your point, Andre, um, you know, just storing up more free energy. Like you have more optionality if you can, if you can hog more and more mass energy into whatever, whatever you want or under your control. Um, the update for me on this was that there is at least now a compelling argument that says for optimal policies and there is a follow-on piece of work that Alex Turner has, I think, already done. He's kind of put out a preprint version of this that does extend it to suboptimal policies. Um, but, uh, but that essentially, we now have a prior that says, look, if you, um, if you take at least one set of reward uh, symmetries or environment symmetries, uh, you should expect that if you pick a reward distribution at random, that reward distribution will be deeply pathological from the standpoint of an, of an arbitrarily capable agent. So to the extent that capabilities increase, you will see more pathological behavior assuming those symmetries. The question is, does that generalize to other symmetry states? But this certainly does inform the prior of whether we should expect safety to be taken care of by itself. Um, so for me, this is more about like, should we, the argument that says, well, you know, over time, we should kind of default expect that safety will sort itself out. This idea that systems that are more capable will be more safe um, kind of almost as a consequence of their capability, uh, becomes more dubious through this lens. So I, uh, I thought it was interesting for that reason. I like the caveats. I think they're really important to keep in mind. Um, and, and that's, what I think, one of the things that this sort of paper does for us, right? Like, it allows us to look at, okay, what are the real assumptions that are being baked into the safety argument? What are the ways that the theory needs to approach practice a little bit more, more closely? Um, I just found this exciting because it's kind of like a first attempt to bring that theory into something closer to practice. 
It's like an actual experiment, like which you never see with alignment research or rarely do. So sort of exciting mm. for that reason, at least at my end, I would say. Yeah, and I think this speaks to another trend that we like, which is an increased amount of sort of empirical analysis papers as opposed to, you know, algorithm development papers, where instead of, you know, getting another state-of-art result by tweaking your algorithm or your model or whatever, the goal is more so to understand how what we have right now behaves. And we've seen that more and more, I think, and it's more and more accepted you know, there was just recently a paper analyzing sort of the performance of transformers and what differs between different heads. Uh, one of the people I work with uh, did uh, a paper on kind of looking into video models and, and whether they really uh, do what you think they do, to not reveal too much. But yeah, I think there's been a lot of that. There was actually recently a paper about benchmarks that I've that was like trending on a hacker news and how like use of benchmark evolves over time. Uh, so yeah, I think that has been pretty exciting for me where we do need to transition a little bit into this uh, more scientific mode of examining things, doing experiments as opposed to just benchmarking. I'm also curious about the intersection of this paper um, around seeking power, you know, opening doors and, uh, uh, interestingness. Mm. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to remember if that was what what sparked the thought here. But a hundred percent. I think that I think there's something really. Oh God, there's something really interesting about that idea because um, it does seem to overlap, right? Like there's this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like learning to juggle. I mean, it's not that it gives me more power over my environment, but like if I'm gonna choose to explore, I guess I might bias towards things that. But then that also seems like a, a, an instrumental goal. And so I don't know how that goal piece plays into the, the um, open-endedness. But uh, yeah, sorry, I, I just, I think that's a really cool point. <laughs> well, you know, curiosity <laughs> in, um, in um, RL, there's this term like intrinsic reward versus extrinsic reward. I'm pretty sure intrinsic being this curiosity thing where it's not from the environment per se, not from the task. And in humans, we have intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation. So personally, I don't think I would learn to juggle. And I think I would often people, you know, do, do stuff for grades. Um, but yeah, when you do, do something just out of pure interest, I think that's sort of intrinsic. You're intrinsically motivated for some reason. And, and who knows where that comes from? I could, I could use more of that, I think, in some cases, for sure. That's so interesting. If we could bake in, you know, one's desire or an algorithm's desire to seek interestingness, which is that intrinsic motivation, it sounds like you're mapping onto that. And then the extrinsic motivation of, you know, reward seeking or like trying to optimize uh, for that. Um, I also see this as an interesting, um, so maybe it's a Pareto curve for that, but also a curve for, uh, you know, explore, exploit trade-offs um, right. and and when they decide to do one or the other. But it actually feels like both are different policies for exploration in a sense. Yeah. Interesting yeah. is like I am exploring um, in this way of, you know, oh, I wonder what this does because I guess downstream all of this interestingness will open significant doors at some point, but it's random. It's not, it's not deterministic. 
you know, right. and of course, on the other hand, it's, it's not necessarily deterministic either, but um, it feels more targeted towards, towards something. Um, mm. but, and yet you're still exploring, you're still, yeah, opening up at those doors. Yeah. Yeah. Th- I, I really like that, that mapping something maybe that uh, Ken will get to exploring over it over at open AI. Mm, well, I think we've been a little technical uh, lately with all this research. How about we can chat on some fun things? I think, you know, uh, I, I recall this has been less the case uh, recently, but the explosion of VQGAN and Clip yeah. fun <laughs> was really pretty neat earlier this year where not only you know was there sort of a community aspect where OpenAI didn't release Dolly, so someone just hacked together again and clip, and you know now you can generate images from text. But there was all this adoption of everyone just having fun, um, and and yeah, I f- looking back at this year, I think that was a little novel uh, and and fun to observe. Yeah, the Twitter timeline will never look the same. Yeah, there's uh, there's Rue Dali now too, eh? Like the uh, yeah. so we're starting yeah. to see that yeah, open source. So kind of an interesting time for. And I guess that goes back to some of the stuff we were talking about too, like the proliferation of this stuff and like what does it really mean to withhold publication of an algorithm in a context where you know twelve months later or whatever it is, it's just going to be out anyway. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, really exciting on the on the TL. <laughs> Well, well, to be clear, Rue Dolly and the Chinese version are like you. You actually have to write Russian or Chinese into it for it to help. The, so, like, I mean, there could be a translation, you know, like a layer there beforehand. But it did occur to me that oh wow, it's open source now. OpenAI's got nothing over them, and then I realized oh. Oh, <laughs> I don't yeah. know how to type Google in. Translate is pretty good, you know. <laughs> that, well, that that is actually um, what people do now. Like I, I've seen, like you know, it's it, typically Google yeah. Translate, and then what? It's it's just the world is inception of machine learning at this point. It's just like these. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, it'll be fun. I don't know if this will happen again. Um, I mean, there's been something similar with Art Breeder going on for years of, you know, kind of a playground to generate new things. And it'd be interesting if at some point you'll get this for reinforcement learning uh, or training agents. Like there are some of these games like generate a walking thing, you know, there's even a flash games, but if you, yeah, you know, if you um, kind of gamify training robots to do things or, or things like that, you know, create your own task and see for what can solve it. Uh, this sort of like crowd use of AI and discovery of its potential would be pretty fun. And, and we've seen also prompting of GPT-3, I guess. So more and more when you release a model that's really powerful, you know, people play with it and then you like get your mind blown by all the things it can do. There are a lot of companies, uh, this is stating the obvious, but there are a lot of companies that are just like, front ends for GPT-3 at this point. Um, yes. I was like, uh, so every time, um, every time there's a Y Combinator demo day, like my brother and I always go and, and it's like the, I think last time it was, there was like half a dozen or something through YC alone. And it was so interesting that like the, the problems that many of them were tackling 
were actually, I don't want to call them narrow AI problems, but they were almost narrow problems where, you know, at the margins, there was just enough noise from kind of usual word text or HTML sometimes is parsed to make older systems totally ineffective. But GPT-3 just gets you past that limit. So you kind of unlock a whole bunch of uh, different interesting applications. Um, some of which, again, have nothing to do with text, like you know HTML parsing or stuff like that. So, uh, anyway, it's just really cool to see the proliferation of stuff coming out of out of t the tech industry now, um, downstream from GPT three. And also, a lot of the founders of these companies have come out and they they literally say, "Yes, we are only a front end interface yeah. for GPT three. Like they're not even adding fluff or saying that they're doing more. They're like, no, we are we are just." marketing towards, you know, often marketers, um, or, or someone, um, and, and that's it. <laughs> and, and yet that requires a lot of work too. That's the cool thing is like, yeah. you know, yeah. You know like, yeah, even, even at that, you still, it's precisely, um, because of that, they're not ashamed to reveal it. There's no shame in it. There's still tons of talking to your users and customizing that has to go into it. It's uh, yeah, it's a great, that's a great point. Yeah, and, and this reminds me also this year, a few months ago, uh, you probably can remember all the kerfuffle about foundation models. Oh, God, yeah. like, okay, this, these kind of models, we call them foundation models, and now we have the center for, for foundation. How, how do we feel about that term, by the way? I, I have to lob that grenade out here just to see. Uh, I... I I'm not. I am not a big fan because for me it's very ambiguous. Uh, like you know, AlexNet was a foundation model in some sense. You pre-train it, and you can do it for a bunch of downstream vision tasks. So how is that different from GPT-3, aside from it being much much bigger? Um, I can sort of see the usefulness of it. It's it's kind of fuzzy, right? It's kind of vague, but. Like maybe it's better than like very large pre-trained models or something. Uh, although VLP or VLPM could be a pretty good acronym. So I don't know. I, I see the motivation. I think it's justified well in the paper. But uh, what do you think, Sharon? I'm, I'm hearing that it sounds like it's just helping us map it to natural language a bit better. <laughs> map it onto how humans talk about uh, things. But I, I agree in that, you know, for a lot of our models, we could just lop off that last layer and it's a foundation model, arguably, right? So um, it's, it's yeah, it's it's kind of hard to say that this is exactly um, the right way to put it. But I, I understand that <laughs> people uh, need to publish things and establish things and stuff. So... <laughs> There, this is part of that reward. This feels like that opening doors, does it not? Like not, not, not even opening doors. It does actually feel like the other model of just like, um, yeah, it's going towards something else. And if it can establish, you know, its own institute, then maybe it can now gather money or you know more resources towards it. <laughs> I don't know. It feels yeah. like humans are doing that. Yeah. Yeah. No. I. I. I mean. I. I think I generally agree with the ambivalence I, I honestly like my biggest reaction was surprise at just like the intensity of the feelings apparently around that. I don't think most people actually felt as intensely about it as, as it seemed on on Twitter or whatever but 
Never. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, yeah, the the TL is a very uh, is is full of hot takes that are really lukewarm. But um, mm-hmm. I, I thought that the like the yeah the term sounded like maybe it could be optimized more. But the fact of having a word for it seemed useful. Like this is a we do we do mean a certain kind of thing when we talk about foundation models. And just because my English is not so good and I can't articulate exactly precisely what that thing is. Um, in a way that kind of puts a nice dividing line between things like that are more like VGG and things that are more like GPT, um, it still feels kind of instrumentally useful to have that label. Um, Sharon, as you said, maybe because we can make institutes on top of it now. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah, I think the controversy was a bit interesting because looking back, I think the controversy was less about the name per se, although maybe if it was you know something more uh, jargony, maybe it would be less uh, of a But I think a lot of it was also kind of implicitly about whether scaling up is a future or not. And there's a lot of people who are like, oh, scaling up transformers is not a way to general AI. And all these people think so, and that's annoying. Um, and yeah, so that I think is what caused the debate. I wasn't really worried about the name, but I, I am excited about the center actually. Because it's, I think one thing that's interesting is we are seeing industry doing all these giant models, right? And how can academia ever do that? And this is one example where you establish a center where you have the resources to potentially train a GPT-3 and you are working with academics and, and are you know, hopefully doing more academic research. So I think I'm excited to see what the center will do. But also, oh, sorry. maybe a, one more. Okay. Uh, and then also that reminds me, just last week, uh, we heard about Timnit uh, Gebru's new uh, research institute, the Distributed AI Research Institute, which is also a bit similar in that it's, you know, splitting away from big tech and doing sort of research about them, uh, funded not by big tech, uh, which, yeah, maybe is another example where we're seeing this model of getting resources away from companies so that we can have research as independent and maybe less constrained or, or less directed towards profits. I think it's important for that institute to be independent, um, honestly. And I, and I think... I mean, ideally, it comes from within, um, but Timnit tried that and it didn't work. So, yeah, it, uh, it can work depending. I think Twitter, you know, has been doing pretty well, but mm. it's good to have both. Uh, right. yeah. Sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess a similar spirit behind, again, more in the, the kind of alignment world here, but similar spirit behind the anthropic open AI thing. Um, you know, you sort of yeah. see some of those incentive splits and. Uh, raising questions around that. So yeah, interesting to see the, the consistency and maybe back to that theme of like the margins that usually go to safety or usually go to ethics or what have you getting eroded as this competition starts to kick in and companies just can't afford to focus on this stuff or or don't want to or whatever else. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we'll see. Me and Sharon in our last week in our podcast talk a lot about facial recognition, surveillance. Um, and yeah, I think there's things on the horizon that might 
really spill out of AI research conversations to the real world uh, would haven't quite yet. Slaughterbots. <laughs> well, actually, killer robots. Killer and robots. Robot on US doesn't want to ban it. Yeah. The U.S. just decided not to ban it, right, in the United Nations. So uh, I guess they're coming. <laughs> well, and, and this is that's the the other challenge, right? The game theory behind this, some of this stuff is really awful, right? Because you've got mm. – I, I remember talking to – so over in Canada, our, our big thing is you know, human in the loop. And when you look at that as a practical kind of doctrine militarily, it's just not feasible. Like if your adversaries are going to have these fully automated loops, then you better have one too. And otherwise you're, you know, you're going to be reacting like 50 milliseconds to later, whatever it is, or, or like 10 times later. Mm. Um, it's yeah. I, I don't know what the solution there is, but uh, I hope there is one. <laughs> We'll see. Uh, luckily, robotics AI is not nearly there to do much of anything. They can't lift like stack blocks, much less control a really complicated thing. So don't worry about that. Just focus on on the fun stuff. And yeah, I think we are uh, just about out of time, so we're gonna wrap up. Uh, yeah, this has been a really fun conversation. Thanks, Jeremy, for uh, joining us and having this crossover between um, Last Week in AI and Towards Data Science. Yeah, this was a ton of fun. I'm really glad that we did this, and uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll end up seeing each other again in six months. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. With another whirlwind of, yes. of things and ideas and <laughs> changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to wrap up, as usual, for listeners, go check out our respective podcasts. Uh, you know, uh, if you're Last Week in AI, you can check out Towards Data Science and vice versa and subscribe and review and all those sorts of things. Um, yeah, and, and listen in to our uh, future stuff. We're, we're, you know, both podcasts are really good. I yes, promise. They, they, no, they're... <laughs> we have a lot of fun in both of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope you have fun listening as well. 